I'm very joyful, very happy, very excited. But I'm also very burdened and focused on this topic. And I want to invite you with me to go on a journey today. We are ministering under the overall theme of the call, the prophetic call. And we've had a lot of fun. There's been some great words, easily 100, 150, maybe 200 people yesterday received personal prophetic words from the team ministering. There's been words of knowledge and manifestations of the Spirit publicly from the platform, and I believe that there's more to come. This call is the call of the Holy Spirit taking us deeper into Him for what He wants to do. Now, we can't make that happen. Um, probably, we could make it look as if it's happening, whether it was happening or not. And that's a shameful admission. But that's a lot of stuff that I see in different places. I'm not judging or criticizing. All I'm saying is that my heart is for the genuine move of God. And if nothing happens, nothing happens. One of the things about Paul Cain you will learn, you saw a little bit of it yesterday, although he was tired and jet lagged, but the point is, is that if he has nothing to say, he will say nothing. I've been in places where somebody says, okay, now, uh, here he is, Paul, he's going to come and prophesy, and he stands up and says, well, the Lord hasn't shown me anything, so he sits down. The whole session is empty. He won't make it up. Neither should we make it up. So what do we do in the meantime? We search the scriptures, we open our hearts, and we say, God, show us how we can do what we can do, what you call us to do, and we know that there will come a point when we maybe can do no more, and then the big prayer will be, Lord, do what only you can do. So I want to talk to you about confessing your sins and experiencing deep cleansings in the presence of God. Confessing your sins and experiencing deep cleansings. I'm going to cover a little bit of teaching as well because there are people today who say, no, you should never, you don't have to confess your sins. In fact, it's a sin to confess your sins because you should confess your righteousness, not your sins. And I get where they're coming from. And there are others though who say, no, no, you've got to confess everything that moves. And you don't even go to sleep at night until you have thought of every single thing that you have committed in that day, even which you're not aware of, that will block you from, from relationship with God. And you end up in a bondage, a religious bondage. Now, somewhere between these two extremes, I believe lies the truth. And let's see if we can get there today. Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 8, of course this is, as you will recognize, the call of Isaiah. 
and you can see why I've turned you to it straight away because here Isaiah calls out to God by way of confessing his sins and inadequacy before God and he receives a deep life transforming cleansing. How many people would want today to be assured of a deep life transforming cleansing purging that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ? Amen? Amen. All right. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord calling. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Now I've preached on this passage a number of times, drawn from those previous messages, but today I, I want to shape this around this whole question of confessing and cleansing. But before I do, I think it's important to make some preliminary comments to set this into context. And of course, we have a very specific historical context. In the year that King Uzziah died, that locates it to a certain time in history, in the 8th century before Christ. And you need to know a little bit about this king, King Uzziah. 2 Chronicles 2, 20, 26 verse 5 says, He sought God in the days of Zechariah. So Uzziah was a God seeker, a God chaser, but, but only in the days of Zechariah. And that's interesting. Because Zechariah was his godly influence. And when that godly influence was removed, then he went back to business as normal. But anyway, he did seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had, underst had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now come with me. Is not that a good reason to keep on seeking the Lord? Hello, you can speak to me, can speak to me. 
you're all scared because you see all this, um, all this purging coming. But relax, relax. <laughs> Sit down for you. Go well with you, righteous. And as long as he sought the Lord, he prospered. When you look deeply, however, when that godly influence over his life, the one who was affecting him, the person who was really his driving motivation, didn't come from within. It was Zechariah who had this godly influence, that understanding of visions of God. Now he was a great blessing to Judah, Uzziah. Great blessing. He brought security to the nation. Because it says in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 15, he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. In other words, when he was in need and he was weak and he wanted his political situation to be strengthened and when the, when the city was, was vulnerable, he was seeking God, listening to the prophet. He was following the Lord, seeking the Lord, and, and he was helped by God. But then there came a time when he became strong. And he says, I don't need that anymore. And then after a while... He transgressed, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So we see what happens. He gets too big for his own boots. He becomes firmly established, a prosperous, successful king who was idolized by the people because who wouldn't kind of think highly of a political leader that brought you peace, security, and prosperity? But he became arrogant, self-confident, and he decided that he would do what the one thing that as king he was not allowed to do, to act as a priest. To go into the temple of God and offer unauthorized incense to behave as a priest. He was not called as a priest. He was not anointed as a priest. He had no business doing that and something terrible happened. We know that God humbled him. He was struck with leprosy and died as a leper. Now, how is all that relevant to us today? We know that there is one government and only one government that God has authorized and God has ordained in which the office of prophet, priest, and king roll into one. And that's the kingdom of God, which is ruled by Jesus Christ our Lord. And as soon as any governmental authority steps out of their jurisdiction 
out of their God-given role and starts to interfere in the world of religion and starts to make pronouncements and starts to dictate to us what we should believe, how we should believe it, what we should say, what we cannot say, that government is doomed to fail by the grace of God. I say by the grace of God. So is that happening today? Oh yes it is. When the government steps into the realm of religion, into the realm of our conscience, into the realm of our private belief, into our rights and individual, as individuals, the freedom to believe as we believe and to choose to believe what we, believe, what we choose to believe. As soon as the government starts to do that, the government steps out of its authority and puts itself against God himself. Three ways that that's happening today. The government is expecting us to to toe this political correct line to say, no, no, all religions are the same. All religions are the same. You know, that's how we get together. That's how we join together. That's how we live together, by accepting your religion and my religion is all basically the same. No, it is not the same. They are not all the same. They are very, very different. Let me give you a quick resume. Buddhism, in its purest form, says nothing is God. Hinduism, in its logical conclusion, says everything is God. They both can't be right. Judaism and Islam say there's only one God who is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And only Christianity says there is one God who is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't tell me they're all the same. They're not the same. Something else that we're told to believe. The government has become suddenly now a great theological religious interpreter and is pronouncing, and woe betide us if we contradict this, Islam is a religion of peace. That's what we're told. Now, believe me, I, I think that there are many, many peaceful Muslims. But Islam is not a religion of peace. Read the Quran, read the Hadith, look at the Sunnah. Now you can say, well, there are certain kinds of Islam which are violent and other kinds which are looking for moderation and so forth. You can say that, but you cannot make a blanket pronouncement and say Islam is a religion of peace. Now, to be fair, I know why they want to say that. Because they're trying to be political leaders. And whenever there is an atrocity committed in the name of Islam, all of the government leaders uh, fall over backwards and say, this has nothing to do with true Islam. And, you know, one of the reasons they say that is because of the acts of violence that are committed against ordinary, normal, peace-loving Muslims every time there is an atrocity. Did you know that? Did you know that? Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Violent crime against Jews is on the rise. But I am ashamed when British people rise up and attack Muslims and try to and, and, uh, make acts of violence against them simply because they're Muslim because of this kind of Islamophobic hatred of Islam. That cannot be in our hearts as believers. Can I have a strong amen? amen? But I believe 
the government or nobody has any right to say you cannot criticize another religion. God knows for how many decades and centuries has Christianity been criticized without any issue. Right? And by the way, if I engage with a Muslim, the first thing I promise is I will never criticize Islam. They say, very happy, I'm glad. But I will answer Islam where Islam criticizes Christianity. Are you okay with that? And they smile, bless them, and they take comfort from that. And from then onwards, I am free to say whatever is necessary to defend the faith that God has given us and given me. But they say, no, you, you can't criticize religion. It, it's, a, it's a private matter. It's very wrong. People, people, people can believe what they want to believe. It's, it's a matter of opinion. It's not something of private discussion, or a public discussion or public debate. It is not facts in the public. It's opinions in the private. Do you know what that is? That is a secularist spirit speaking for and on behalf of the government or the government speaking on for and behalf of that secular spirit. And in that way, you and I are pushed into the margins and we dare not even share with anybody what we believe because they say, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just your opinion. I want to say to you, if Jesus is God, if he died on the cross, was raised again from the dead on the third day, if he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that is not a matter of opinion. If it is true, it's a matter of fact. And if it's a matter of fact, it's true whether you believe it or you don't believe it. But you'd better believe it because if it's true, then you've got to be on the right side of truth. Can I have an amen in the house of God? All right. Government controlling religion. Stepping in where it shouldn't step in. Now, let's move on. That's why it is significant that the year King Uzziah died... Isaiah saw this vision. Now, he says he saw the Lord. Who did he see? The Lord. But who did he see? What did Jesus say? Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Yes. Isaiah saw his glory. This is a vision of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Sitting on a throne, and we see that this throne is high and lifted up above the temple of God. In other words, Uzziah has gone, and now the Lord, who is the true king, is taking his rightful, sovereign, exalted, holy, and glorious place in the, present, in, in, in the temple. It reminds me of the statement of Scripture, No flesh shall glory in my presence. Now the temple is cleansed, cleansed of human pride, self-glory, self-effort. I believe God wants to cleanse his temple, the church. I, 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 I do mean Kensington Temple, but I don't just mean Kensington Temple because we're not just talking about a building. I'm talking about all of God's people. God wants to cleanse his temple he wants to purify his sons of Levi and he wants to come and take his rightful place on the throne, not just of our lives, but at the head of his community, the body of Christ, whom we call the Church of Jesus Christ. Can I have a strong amen? amen. So Isaiah sees this. 
Then we have the seraphim. They are living creatures, not specifically called angels, though some say they fit into that category. But the angels that we know about in Scripture have no wings. They usually appear in human form. They seem to me to be a category of God's creation. Maybe it's in the angelic um, category, but these are four living creatures. They have wings, eyes all around. They do not rest day and night. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Um, heaven and earth is full of his glory. Wonderful stuff. We won't pause to look at that. I've done that on other occasions, but let's just take this point in. What Isaiah saw in this vision was awesome. The foundations of the temple shook and the place was filled with smoke. What is this smoke? The glory of God. His Shekinah. Manifestation of his presence. And he sees these living creatures. I mean these, that's all they do. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. You, you, you couldn't manufacture a reverb microphone strong enough to convey the awesomeness of that. If the building shakes, tell me. Isaiah was also shaking. Have, have you known what it is to shake, to quake in the presence of God? During the times of the outpouring of God in Pensacola, powerful visitations of God's holiness, I remember being on this very platform, or was it the one we made before this, but anyway, here. My bones were shaking on the inside. God is an awesome God. And don't tell me that we can't talk about that. Why is it that young people today love horror movies? Because there's some need on the inside for us to be overawed by a sense of fear... I'm not talking about demonic fear that is of the devil. I'm talking about the need of the hum- in the human being that we should be awed and overawed by this being that we know in our bones exists, the holy God. And if only we could bring our young people into contact with the holy God, they would be shaking, they'd be on their faces, and they'd be giving glory to God for the rest of their lives. We need this generation to meet with God, not the puppy dog God, not the Santa Claus dog, not the fairy Christmas dog, uh, God. We need, did I say puppy dog God? Yes. Yeah, you got it. It is just a, but we need them to meet the true and the living God who will scare the living daylights out of you and scare, I say it reverently, hell right out of you and hell, heaven right into you. Amen. Yeah. That's what we want. 
Our God is a big God. Our God is a gracious God. Our God is a glorious God. He's a strong God. And this generation needs to meet with him. Not our 21st century scaled down wooden version of him. My eyes have seen the Lord. God grant us a vision of that. And when that happens, something else happens immediately. He begins to cry out, Whoa, woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is the opposite of blessing. In other words, he is feeling bad. This is the godly feel bad factor. Have you had it? You don't have to live there, but have you had it? Have you had the feel bad factor? Until we've had that experience where we feel bad in the presence of such a holy God, I doubt if we can ever say we've met him. Are you with me? Woe is me. Now, and, and, and don't think this is some way of thing and it's so unreasonable and it's so, uh, so impossible and we shouldn't even speak about it. Because I can tell you one thing. If the risen, glorified Christ stood physically and visibly before us in all his glory, it wouldn't only be John the apostle who falls on the ground as though dead. We would all, we would all be fallen on the ground. That's who he is. Because that's the difference between him and us. And, and the effect on our lives is amazing. It's wonderful. The first thing that happens when we're in the presence, manifest presence of a holy God is we, we cry out because of our sinfulness and our weakness and the stuff that's going on in the depths of our heart, in the humanity, the fallen humanity of our nature. Even believers. Amen? And that's what's so wonderful. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. And, and he confesses his sin. And this is, this is what he says. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And why am I undone? Because I've just seen the Lord. Do you want a vision of him like that? Can I ask again? Let me change my tone of voice because then you will probably answer me. Would you like a vision of God like that? Get ready for it, it'll come. Paul Cain prophesied, he said, there's going to come such manifestations of God that some of you will, won't even be able to speak for days after you've seen him. Oh, then it won't be, do I tithe on the gross or the net? Do I have to speak with tongues when the Holy Spirit comes? Do I have to, have to do that? No. God will take over. And there will come a purging. Now, the purging, the deep work of cleansing, I believe is vital for this day and hour. Notice what he confesses. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Wow. 
What that is saying is, you know what? I'm here trying to preach and prophesy, but, but I need something in my life. I need a cleansing. I need a transformation. Because right now, I don't feel that different to those people out there. And is that not an issue? I'm not rebuking. I'm speaking the truth. Not that we ever want to say, look, I'm better than you to the people of the world. But there must be something about us that they look at and say, wow, what, why is there such a difference? What is it about you? The only difference between us and them is him. But if the more he's in our lives, the more that difference is going to be seen. And, and I tell you, when that happens, when that comes, there will be a lot less arguing, a lot less criticizing, a lot less flirting with the edges of sin. There will be such a passion for Christ. Now, one of the things that we learn about Isaiah and his great expression as the Holy One of Israel, always shaped by this vision, was that he was drawing their attention to the superficiality of their faith. Isaiah 22, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Isaiah said, you know, I'm just like the rest of them. All these words chip off my mouth. It's so easy for me to talk like this and talk like that and sound spiritual and even prophesy and, and, and all that spiritual talk, 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 talk. But my heart is desperate. And today, are you prepared in the house of God to say, that's me? Not, this is not condemnation. No condemnation has come. This is grace. That's me. And I believe one of the miracles of the present hour and the hour into which we're moving is a miracle of grace in which such a deep work of cleansing and purging and transformation is taking place that we will find it easy to obey God. Easy to listen to him. Easy to put sin behind us and to embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But when I say easy, I don't mean there's no effort, by the way. I just mean it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Aren't we tired, as the old hymn goes, of lukewarm service and the loss it brings? And these seraphim, whatever they are, the, the Hebrew word that uh, is used to, to make up this word is the word about burning and fire. They're on fire! They are burning with a fiery passion. Amen? Yes. Let God stir up your passion. You can't be coming into a service, hallelujah, and then go out and play games. You don't play games. You walk in the spirit. You walk in the fire. You walk in the holiness of God. And by his mercies, you're not consumed. Amen and amen. So he, he confesses. And it happens automatically. When the people came to be baptized by John the Baptist, he preached repentance. And they came down right there in the water to be baptized, confessing their sins. And the word there means out loud, out loud. 
They didn't care. There was such a sense of God's presence and holiness. And they said, I want to get right with God. And they began to speak out their sins. There was no father confessor. There was no list of things they had to write on a list and burn or send up on a Chinese lantern. It was all about the spontaneous understanding that God's a holy God and he wants to get the sin out of my life. Amen and amen? Now, let's deal with a little bit of this. Now, there is a teaching today that says, no, 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 you don't confess your sins. Totally wrong to confess. All your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and it's an insult to God to bring up any sin before him. Anybody heard that? And they point to such things as, well, you know, it's a very Jewish thing to do. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive are those who have trespassed against us. But of course, that is just Jesus speaking to Jews under the law before the cross. The book of John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But of course, that, that's, that's talking, talking about how to get saved. We'll turn to that passage in a moment. Now, I know where they're coming from. And let me show you, there is a truth, a beautiful truth in what they say. I said a truth, it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but it is a truth. Let's look at it and rejoice. Turn to Romans chapter 4, would you do that? Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, if we understand it correctly is a passage which is going to be very powerfully used by God in the moves of God that are to come. It says a lot of things, but look what it says. First of all, he is talking about being justified by faith and faith alone. In other words, God declares you righteous not by the works which you have done, but because you trust in Christ. He, and he chooses two examples from the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. The Old Testament to show what it means to be declared righteous, to be justified before God. The first example is Abraham, a man who lived before the law, and then David is a man who lived under the law. And when he talks about Abraham, it says... Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay? Let's unpack that very, very briefly. What is it saying is that Abraham, even before the law, there was the law of Moses had not existed. How could he ever be justified by the works of the law? The law hadn't even existed. And he said it wasn't by his works that he was declared righteous. He simply believed God. And when he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. And in this way, God justifies the ungodly who believe. And when you're justified, God declares you as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. 
as they used to say, just as if I had never sinned. In other words, all your sin is dealt with. It is removed from you. Sin is not counted to you. Only the righteousness of God is credited to your account and you receive this by faith. Then illustrating the same point, justification by faith, he takes David as an example. And it says in verse 6, just as David also speaks. In other words, this is exhibit B. Exhibit A is Abraham. Exhibit B is David. Both describing justification by faith and by faith alone. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Can you see he's still talking about justification? Can you see that? Okay, then he quotes David, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Because God has declared us righteous, all our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, past, present, and future. Can you see that? I'm forgiven. Amen? My sins are taken away. In place of my sins, the righteousness of Christ has been given to me. Now, because of that, and that part is true, people say, oh, well, therefore, you don't need to confess your sins because it, they're all taken away. Your past, present, and future sins are removed. Well, yes, in your position before God. But that doesn't make you sinless in your daily walk, does it? So in our standing before God, there is nothing more to confess except the name of Jesus. But as we walk with Jesus, oh yes, there's a lot to talk to him about it. Here's a story I tell you, you've heard it many times, I just invent the story to explain this. Suppose I have a teenage son, 17 years of age, he's just passed his driver's license and he's turned 17, he's all ready, and uh, I buy him a Honda, a Honda, a Hyundai, a lawnmower on wheels, uh, 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 that's his car. Okay son, go out and enjoy yourself, you're fully insured, but be careful, see you in an hour. So, well, can I take your brand new blue Audi? No, that Audi is big man's car. It's for young, healthy men. It's not for boys. Anyway, you know what happens. I go inside. One hour, he's not around. Two hours, not around. And then suddenly there's a knock at the door. I knock at the door and I see my beautiful blue Audi. It had nothing to do with Audi. I just chose the color. Gabriel chose the rest. I chose the color. Okay. And it's all smashed up, all smashed in. And then I see a policeman walking my son up to the front door. And I realize what has happened. He has taken the keys to the Audi, left the Hyundai hairdryer behind. <laughs> and the first thing the policeman says to me is, is this your son? What do I answer? Just for a moment, I'm tempted to say, 
no, never seen him before in my life. But I cannot lie. Yes, officer, this is my son. Has what this guy done to his dad, has that changed the relationship? Am I still his dad? Does he need me? Yeah. But how many know that when we get inside, we're going to have a conversation? <laughs> can you see the difference? There's no sin that can ever turn God against you. Christ has paid the price for every one of them. But as we walk with him in our relationship, we do need to be talking about stuff. And the kind of conversation I have to say, son, what you've done is very serious. Not only you've disobeyed me, you put yourself at risk, but everybody else at risk. You weren't insured for that car. There's going to be massive consequences to come. And you and I have got to come to an understanding, boy. You've got to change. This behavior is unacceptable. And if he's wise, he said, Dad, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I've learned my lesson. Is that not right? So it's very simple. When we walk with Jesus, there are things that we do need to talk about. And it's a very good thing to follow the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us and so on. Very good to follow John, 1 John chapter 1. We won't turn to do it, just look at it later, but it's if we... So if we say we have no sin, we, we're, we're liars. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it is important to talk to God about stuff that's gone on in your life and say, God, I let you down there. It's not because you're going to lose your salvation if you don't. It's not that you're going to lose your fundamental relationship with, or your justification is in doubt. No, it is about walking closely with God and that we do need the parental forgiveness of our Heavenly Father on a daily basis, but the judicial forgiveness that took place at the cross is a once-for-all experience. Does that help you make sense of it? Another way of looking at this is, is Peter, enthusiastic Peter. Peter's Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. No, I'm not going to let you do that. Oh, well, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part, you have no part with me. And, and Peter says, okay, if you're going to wash my feet, wash all of me then. And Jesus said, no, no, no. He that has had a bath does not need another one. You're clean. Through the word I've spoken to you. But I do need to wash your feet. In other words, the daily walk of our lives as we sully our feet in our daily walk, Jesus wants to wash our feet and we need to come to him and say, God, forgive me, forgive me. Now, this doesn't mean to say that if you die with unconfessed sin, you go to hell. It doesn't mean that. And neither does it mean that you have to muckrake in your life and think about the 65,000 things that you could have done wrong before you start talking to God and, and fellowshipping with Him. No. The Bible says, walk in the light as He is in the light and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. Walk in the light of what you know. Walk in the light of what He shows you. When He pinpoints something in your life, you, you bring it to Him. And confession simply means, means saying the same thing that God says about your sin. You own it in order to disown it. Have you noticed nowhere in all of Paul's writings does he ever say you need to confess your sins? Have you noticed that? It's 
found in John and a few other verses. It's not found in Paul. Why? Because Paul's way of approaching it is you come before God, put off the old and put on the new. It's about dealing with your sin, not just making verbal confession with it. It's forsaking it and abandoning it. Okay? Does some of that help you to clear up that, that kind of conundrum? Now let's just finish with this. So yes, he makes a big confession. Woe is me! I'm lost! I'm undone! You, you, don't, you don't live there, by the way. Your address is not Mr. Lost Undone. But exactly, who said thank God? Exactly. This is not where you live. But there are times when we need to visit here. Because as soon as you have acknowledged that you have sinned, 1 John chapter 2, I write these things that you do not sin, but if anyone sins, then know this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the one that turns God's wrath away from our sins, not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Do you know the answer? This is why we're not scared to talk about sin in this church, because the answer is there. Amen? And so in this kind of picture language, when he cries out, God, I need you. I'm a man of unclean lips. One of those seraphim flies and takes tongs and takes a coal from the altar. Not even that holy heavenly creature will dare touch that coal. He uses tongs. A creature of fire uses tongs. So you know what's coming. And that is, speaks of the fire, the purging fire of the altar of God, the purging fire of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ applied not to sinless angels, but to sinful men and women, men and women with unclean lips living in a generation where it is unclean. If we're ever living in an unclean generation, it is now. And God help us and he will help us to be purged from the stains and the things that have affected us and sometimes don't even know that we've been affected by them because we become so fleshly tolerant in a fleshly way. But when the holiness of God touches you and you see the joy of God and the glory of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the majesty of God and you say, I want that, something has to happen on the inside. You need a cleansing. You need a purging. The Holy Spirit wants to cleanse you from these things and bring you out the other side purified by the blood of Jesus Christ and then you are a purged, purified vessel ready to serve God. There must come a confessing and a purging before the call can be put into operation. Do you see where I'm heading in this? Now I've yelled a lot, I've shouted a lot today, not because I just want to get, get, through, get, get this through to you. This is a good place to be, very good place to be, the presence of God. Very good place. It's pure. It's wonderful. And you know what? In the presence of God, there is nothing that is not of God that you want to hold on to. Yeah. 
Do you know that? When you're, when you're on the periphery and you're looking around, you're missing the cell meeting and you're missing this meeting, you don't do your daily prayer, Bible study, you don't do any of that stuff, and you get all lazy and fleshly, then all the world and all its attractions seem so attractive. But the moment you turn your focus on Jesus, you say, what in heaven's name am I even thinking about that rubbish? Look at what I have, the beauty, the glory of Jesus.